you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. We're in 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to be looking at verses 50 through 58. We're using the Pew Bible. It's found on page 962. And this is our last, our eighth and last sermon in this chapter, in chapter 15. And this, this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, this is about the resurrection. The entire chapter gives us different aspects of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the necessity for the resurrection. And the section that we looked at last week, last Sunday, Paul answers the question, the question, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Well, today, today we come to the climax of the entire chapter. Today we find the reason why Paul is so insistent on the fact of the resurrection. And I believe this section is not only the, the highlight of chapter 15, but I think this is the highlight of the entire book of 1 Corinthians. In fact, this really gives us the destination of the Christian life itself. So this is an amazing, amazing passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 58. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you for the encouragement. We thank you for the truth that they convey. And Father, I pray that you will bless my feeble words. Lord, I pray that you will give me the ability by the power of your Holy Spirit to speak the truth of this passage. And Father, I pray that you will open our eyes, every single one of us here in this room, every single one of us watching on the live stream, and that we will see a glimpse of the magnitude of the hope that you have, that you have given us in Christ. It's in his name and for his glory we pray. Amen. Well, last week my dad had sent me an email informing me that the father of a close childhood friend had just passed away. And I'd known this friend for, for about 45 years. And, and although we don't see each other often since high school, when we were together, and the last time we were together was last summer, a little over a year ago, whenever we were together, we would instantly connect, just like we did in high school. And I have fond memories of his dad, and it was sad to hear of his, his death. See, the family had a beach house at the, at the Jersey Shore, and when we were in middle school and high school, we would always go down and spend a week or two over the summer at this family beach house. And I remember the dad, he would take us out on his, on his boat. We would go fishing or we would go water skiing. He, he dragged me through the water. As I, I'm not a very good water skier as I'm holding on to the back of the boat and forgetting to let go. Or, or he'd take us clamming. Like the first time I went clamming, I, I'm, I'm going through my feet in, in the mud and the water. I step on a clam and I immediately jump back on the boat because I'm terrified of the clam. So I have all these, these, these wonderful, wonderful memories. 
And although I haven't seen this man in, in over 35 years, I was still saddened to hear about his death. And what this reminds me of is the harsh reality, the harsh reality that death is our last enemy. I mean, think about it. As a race, as, as the human race, we have overcome so many obstacles in this world. We have tamed this world. We have traveled to outer space. We have shortened distances through modern communication and, and modern travel. I mean, I think of my parents. I live a thousand miles from my parents. 200 years ago, it would take at least two months to travel that distance, and probably even longer to try to write a letter to them. But today, I can communicate with them instantly. They may even be watching right now this service on, on, on our live stream. And in fact, it, it, it's very little now that can separate people. Think about it. We can communicate with people on the other side of the world. You know, things that we, we, we can, like things like Google Translate, we can communicate with people who don't even speak the same language. I remember when I was in Rome and on a ca taxi cab, and the cab driver didn't speak English. I'm on Google Translate trying to tell him where I want him to take me to. See, our, our ability today to travel and, and to communicate would really be seen as, as miraculous throughout much of world history. But there's one barrier, one barrier that cannot be crossed. Despite our technology, despite our advancements in communication, despite our advancements in travel, we cannot communicate across the barrier of death. No matter how much we want to, no matter how much we long to, we cannot again hear the voice of a departed loved one or once again feel their embrace. There's absolutely nothing in this world we can do, despite all our advancements, to satisfy this longing. And furthermore, there is nothing any of us can do to escape this inevitable end. Despite our advancements in medicine and nutrition, we cannot conquer death. It is truly our last enemy. It is our ultimate problem. And from a human perspective, it is an ultimate unsolvable problem. And even though death is inevitable, death is not natural. Death is wrong. Death is not part of God's original plan. And it's appropriate. It is appropriate for us to hate death and to mourn for those who have died, to mourn for those for that, that severed relationship, to mourn for this impenetrable barrier that's separating us from our loved ones. In every funeral service that I preach, I make this point. Even Jesus himself. Jesus himself wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, even though that this, he knew that this death would be temporary, even though he knew he would be raising Lazarus from the dead. So don't let anyone tell you, don't let anyone tell you that as Christians we don't mourn, that we don't weep for death. Death is not natural. It is not from God. As we saw in, in the reading from Genesis that Hal read for us this morning, death is because of sin. Death is the result of a man, our race, our sinful rebellion against our creator. And death is the just, it is the natural consequence of our reaction of God and seeking to be our own God. And this was, Adam was clearly warned. God clearly warned Adam, our representative, that death would result from his disobedience. And mankind's rebellion against God caused a, a structural change in the creation, a change at the, at the most basic level. What God had created and declared very good due to man's rebellion against God has become corrupted, has become fallen. And not just humans, but the entire creation. The entire creation is corrupt and fallen. Romans 8, Romans 8 tells us the creation has been subjected to death and futility, not willingly, but as a result of our sin, the sin of man. And this passage that we're looking at today provides for us the answer. 
the answer to the problem of death, the answer to the problem that was caused by our sin, the answer to the problem to which there is no human solution. Our only hope is the divine solution. We also see in this passage why Paul labored so diligently throughout chapter 15 to defend the resurrection and to explain how it happens, why it is necessary, and what the resurrected body will be like. In verse 50, Paul identifies our problem. Paul says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. These two statements, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. They're both saying the same thing. See, flesh and blood here in this verse, this is not a reference to physical, but it's rather it's a reference to our fallen and corrupt nature. It's a reference to what is fleshly, what is carnal, what is worldly, as opposed to that which is holy, opposed to that which is spiritual, which is godly. It's basically saying that the profane cannot dwell in the presence of the holy. And we are by nature. By nature, due to our union with Adam, we are profane. We are worldly. We are sinful. And in this condition, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God, which is holy. And this is why it is essential. This is why it is essential that we must be born again. We must go from being dead in our sins and trespasses to being alive in Christ. We must become a new creation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the only way that we can be fitted for the kingdom of God. And as Christians, as Christians, we are now in a hybrid state. Because of Christ's substitutionary death on our behalf, our sins have been punished in Christ. So there's no longer any sin debt in us. The debt has been fully and totally paid by Christ on the cross. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And because of the merit of Christ's sinless and perfect obedience to God, this has been applied to those of us who are in Christ. As Christians, our legal standing before God is the same as Christ himself. In Christ, our legal standing before God is one of sinless and perfect obedience. Praise God. In Christ, we are perfectly holy, and thus we are fitted for the kingdom of God. But we are in this hybrid state. We are in this hybrid state in the sense that what we have been declared that is perfectly holy, and what we are in actuality, that is sinners, are not yet the same. But my friends, it will one day be. Just as God has declared us holy, he has justified us, even now God is in the process of sanctifying us. That is, he is making us to be in actuality what we have been declared. My friends, this is an ongoing process. It's a lifelong process. It's a process in which we participate with God to become more like Christ, to become more holy. That is the Christian life. In this hybrid state, it is a difficult position to be in because we are both holy and profane at the same time. We both desire the things of God and the things that oppose God. We are in a constant battle, a constant state of tension as we struggle to be more like Christ, to grow in our sanctification. In some ways, in some ways, our lives would be easier if we weren't Christian. Now, while we'd have all kinds of other problems, definitely, but we would at least not have this ongoing struggle, this constant internal struggle against our sin. If we were not Christian, we would just be happy with our sin. That would not be a concern for us. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that this is not our eternal state. God will one day totally and completely take away our sin nature and make us perfectly like Christ. 
perfectly like Christ, both in body and soul. And as we discussed last week, one day we will have a resurrected body. A resurrected body that is, that is totally and completely free of sin. Free from imperfections. Free from infirmities. We will never get sick. And it is fitted to dwell in Christ's presence for all eternity. And this resurrected body will be just like Christ's resurrected body. Now, a natural question that we have at this point is how? How is this going to be? And, and when? When is this going to be? How does this change happen? And when will this change happen? And Paul answers this. And Paul also answers another question as well. Since he has been talking solely about the resurrection of the dead, there naturally would have been questions, what about those still alive? What about those still alive when Christ returns? What would happen to them? Would they be excluded from these promises? Would they just die right at that moment so that they could be resurrected? We see the answer to these questions in verse 51. Paul starts with, with these, this verse with these words. 51, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. A mystery. What does this mean, a mystery? Well, mystery is something that God must reveal. It's something that was once hidden. It was something that, that you couldn't logically figure out. It's something you can't find from, from general revelation. When Paul speaks of a mystery, he is talking about something that must be revealed through God's special resurrection. Revelation. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, now reveals this mystery to the Corinthians and to the church. And the mystery is this. We shall not all sleep. We shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. So let's unpack this verse a little bit. It says we shall not all sleep. Some people might think that's a bad thing, like especially if you just had a, a baby and you don't sleep much. That's not what it's going to be. It's not like we're not going to sleep. Sleep here is a euphemism. It is referring to death. It's saying that we shall not all die. Just let that sink in for a moment. We shall not all die. Remember Benjamin Franklin famously said that, that nothing is certain except death and taxes. Well, that's not true. For some people, a group of Christians will be alive at Christ's return, and it could include some people in this room at this very moment. They will not taste death. And these people are still alive at Christ's return. They, they're not going to miss out on the resurrection, even though their bodies are not dead, so they can't be raised up. They're not at rest in the grave. Nor will they instantly drop dead so that they can be raised. The mystery that Paul reveals here is that for those of us who are still alive at Christ's return, we will be changed. And what will we be changed into? Well, our mortal bodies will be instantaneously transformed into our resurrected bodies. And we discussed last week what these resurrected bodies will be like. They will be perfect. They will be powerful. They will be imperishable, immortal, indestructible, physically and morally perfect. Without any defect, we will be just like the resurrected Christ. Our bodies will have the same physical properties as Christ's resurrected body. We'll be able to eat as much as we wish and never deviate from our perfect body weight and condition since obesity would be a defect. We will be able to instantaneously travel over vast distances. There will be no constraints, no barriers, no physical barriers such as walls or locked doors. We'll be able to instantaneously communicate with and be in the presence of anyone we want, any saint that we wanted. And verse 53 or 52 tells us when this change will happen. It says, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye. 
This highlights the suddenness of the change. It will be in an instant. It will be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This will happen at the last trumpet. So what does this last trumpet mean? Well, the trumpet was a sign of the day of the Lord. We see multiple references to this in the Old Testament. We see this in Isaiah. We see this in, in uh, Zechariah and in Zephaniah. And, and here's one specific, I'm going to quote from Joel. Joel chapter 2. It says, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people, the like has never been before, nor will be again after them through the years of all generations. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. This is the day the Lord will set all things right. This is the day where he will punish all those who profane his holy name, all those who persecute and abuse the innocent and abuse his beloved children. And when is the day of the Lord? When is the final judgment? It's when Christ returns. And here are these words of Christ's return that we have in the book of Revelation. This is a vision that was given to the Apostle John. In Revelation 19, he says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dripped in blood. And the name in which he calls himself is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following on him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because this is Christ. This is his return. And Christ will come to execute his judgment on those who hate him and rebel against him. Just as we saw from our Westminster Confession, Confession of Faith. And Jesus himself, during his earthly ministry, he warned us to be alert. He he warned us to be diligent because he said he could return at any moment. He told parables about foolish virgins and wicked servants who were not ready for Christ's return and perished as a consequence. And just as we see the suddenness of Christ's return on the day of the Lord, we also see the suddenness of this transformation to our resurrected state. Continuing in verse 52, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. See, the dead will be raised imperishable. That is, their resurrected bodies and, and, and those who are, who are alive, they, they will be changed to resurrected bodies. And Paul gives us more detail about this in, in his letter to the Thessalonians. First Thessalonians 4, he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will raise first. Then we who are alive who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we always will be with the Lord. And like verse 50, verse 53 explains why this transformation is essential. And it describes this change using a clothing metaphor. Verse 53 says, For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And here Paul is is emphasizing that we will be released. We will be released from all the frailties, all the infirmities, all all the sicknesses that we we must endure in this fallen world. 
both of the body and of the soul. These will be finally and forever free. We will be finally and forever free from these effects, these limitations of the fall. And at this point, at this point, all the effects of the fall have ended. Our biggest enemy, death, has been defeated. What a a glorious, what what an encouraging thought. And the next two verses are, are, I think, some of the most encouraging verses in all of Scripture. Verses 54 and 55, it says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? My friends, this is the hope. This is the hope that we have as Christians. Death is a defeated enemy. For the Christian, death is not this eternal barrier. Our hope is that death is swallowed up in victory, in Christ's victory. For those of us who are in Christ, it is, it is absolutely appropriate for us to taunt, to taunt this last enemy, just as Paul did. It's appropriate for us to taunt death. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? And while the final realization of this glorious truth that death has finally and eternally been defeated, this is still future. The death of death will occur at Christ's return. Again, this is still in the future. But there is a sense. There is a sense that this has already happened. And the final realization is in the future. But death has received a mortal blow, a mortal wound. And it has been in the past on the cross. Take a look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. As we saw in our Old Testament reading from Genesis, death is is not natural. Death is not part of God's original plan. And death is solely the result of sin. And where there is no sin, there is no death. This is actually why Jesus had to actually voluntarily give up his spirit. Death had no hold on Jesus. And the power of sin is the law. The law of God. The law of God is the mechanism that reveals our sin. The law reveals God's holy standard, reveals God's holy character. And the law is hated. The law is hated by the natural man because it shows God's requirement, which is moral perfection. And this encounter with the law really leads to to one of three reactions from the moral man. The first is that the moral man will will completely reject the law, will hate the law, and, and in it further rebel against God, further rebel against the law. This is the reaction we see of the pagan. So that's the first reaction. The second reaction is that the natural man will try to dumb down the law. He will try to make it something that he can obtain, something that he can obtain by his natural human effort. He will change it to make it to something that at least superficially he will be able to fulfill. And he'll foolishly believe that by his, by his puny efforts he can, he can conform to this distortion of the law, this dumbed-down law, that he, by doing this he's actually earned God's favor. He's actually earned God's respect. God's granting him eternal life. And this is the reaction of the legalist. This is the reaction of the Pharisee. The third type of person is the person, the third reaction is of the person who has been given grace. This is the one who doesn't flee God, doesn't hate God's law, as the pagan does. And he's not trying to, to distort God's law, to blaspheme God's law, and to make it something that he thinks he can achieve on his own, as the legalist does. No, this last reaction is the man who, by God's grace, sees God's law for what it is. He knows that God is holy. And because of this, he despairs any hope of meeting these requirements on his own. He sees, he sees God as holy. He knows that he is not. And by God's grace, he knows his only hope is one. 
His only hope is in God. His only hope is in Christ. His only hope is on the work of Christ on the cross on his behalf. And this law, the law drives him to Christ. And when this person, by grace alone, makes this discovery about the law, and by faith alone receives and rests upon Jesus Christ alone as his only hope, this person that is transformed from death into life. He goes from being in Adam to being in Christ. He goes to become a new creation in Christ. He becomes a born-again Christian. And as Christians, as Christians, our relationship, his relationship with the law completely changes. The law no longer is a requirement that we must keep perfectly under penalty of damnation. The law is no longer a mechanism that reveals our every sin. The law has been satisfied once and for all by Christ and for the Christian. For the Christian, the law is no longer a cruel taskmaster pointing out our failure, but it is a beautiful, a beautiful expression of the character of our holy God. We no longer tremble, no longer tremble with fear that we might break some minute detail of the law. But rather, we long to keep the law. We love the law. We love the character of God that is expressed in the law. And there is now no condemnation in the law for the Christian. And for the Christian, the power of sin is broken. Because the law has been kept. It has been kept by Christ. The law can no longer condemn us. And for the Christian, the sting of death is broken. Because the power of sin is broken. And for this, we praise God. Just as Paul it continues in verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this victory over sin and over death, this victory is now. And through Christ, it is, it is, it is now, it is through Christ, and it is all of Christ. And this reality, this, this current reality that, that death has been defeated and, and, and its guaranteed future Fulfillment that death will one day finally and forever be removed from us? My friends, this reality changes everything. This reality changes us. This reality changes us at this moment. So we can't be the same. We cannot be the same. We cannot fear death as does the one who does not know the Lord. And for those of us, for those who have died in Christ, we mourn not as the world mourns, as those who have no hope. We have a mighty hope. We know that death has been defeated. Death has been defeated on the cross and it has absolutely no power over the Christian. So we've gone through this passage. We understand what this passage, hopefully what this passage is teaching us. Now is the time for application. What is our application? What do we do? What so what? What, what about us? How are we to react to these beautiful truths that we have learned? How are we to live differently based on the reality presented in this passage? Well, last verse. Last verse in this chapter, verse 58, gives us our application. It says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in, that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, this verse gives us our application. And it's every bit as applicable to us here at Northgate, here in the 21st century church, as it was to the Corinthians that Paul wrote in the first century. So what is our application? Well, as every sermon I preach, if you are an unbeliever, this is not applicable. This passage we read is not applicable to you. This is only for those who are in Christ. And your only application, if you are an unbeliever at this moment, is to come to Christ. Because death has not been defeated for the person. It's only been defeated in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, death will is your enemy. And it will be eternal. 
eternal separation from all that is good. It will be horrible. But if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, your application is simple. We have won. We have already won. If you're a Christian, if you are in Christ, your future is secure. An unimaginable and glorious eternal future awaits every single one of us who are in Christ. And because of this, because of this, we have no fear. We have no true, no eternal fear. For the, for the Christian, nothing that the world throws at us can ultimately harm us. No sickness, no pain, no persecution, no trial can ultimately harm us because we are secure in the grip of His grace. In fact, we know, as Scripture teaches, that all things actually work together for our good, for those who love God and called according to His purpose. But there's a reason why we're here. If we are in Christ, it would be better for us to be in glory, to be in this perfected state. But there is a reason why we are here. There's a reason why at this very moment we are not in glory. We are not already with the Lord. And the reason is that the Lord has work for us to do. If you have breath in your lungs, you have work to do. And this work will bring glory to Christ. Work that will bring others to a saving knowledge of Christ. And our application is simple. It's no matter how difficult our life is in this fallen world, no matter the trials that we must endure at this present time, we must remain steadfast. We must remain immovable in our call, in the work that the Lord has given us to do. We must be always abounding in the work of the Lord. And what is this work? It is prayer. It is worship. It is participating in the sacraments like we will do in a few moments. It is reading scripture. It is proclaiming the gospel. It is serving others. It is witnessing to others. My friends, we have been given the privilege. We have been given the privilege to participate with the Lord in his work. As we just sung, as the scripture told us, our labor is not in vain. In fact, it is guaranteed. It is guaranteed to be successful. It is guaranteed to return a, a harvest of 30, of 60, of 100 fold. Praise God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this vision that you have given to us. And we admit, Lord, that, that our fallen minds at this point, we can't comprehend this truth that I just preached on, this truth that we just read. For many times, we are just so dull on it. And, and I know I am so dull on it. But, Lord, we know it will be good. And I pray, Father, as, as we leave here, Lord, that you will help us to internalize this reality. And it will change us. We will not live the same. We will know that we are bound for glory. And that we are here for a short time to bring you glory. And, Father, I pray that it will change everything. It will change our hearts. It will change our attitudes. It will change our desire to serve only you and that you will be glorified. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.